You're listening to The Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to The Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Paige Labermont. Uh, she's a policy associate here at IER, and she's here to discuss her new policy brief on hydropower, which is titled... A review of the impacts of government on hydroelectric power generation and development. Paige, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Thanks for having me, Alex. So why don't we start with just an overview of uh, the history of hydropower in the U.S. and maybe explain what role hydropower generation plays in our energy mix today. Yeah, sure. Um, so there are three uh, main kinds of hydropower that we think about. Impoundment, is the first kind and it's basically the like dams that you think of the big things that hold water in a reservoir and then it's released at a certain pace to allow turbines to spin and generate power but the reservoir like holds a large amount of water back uh usually it'll stop a river or it'll create a separate reservoir but those are the sort of like the really big projects you see and then there's run of river or um, conduit generation, which is where either running water is diverted from a river or it's in a canal or it's in a pipe. And then it spins a turbine there to generate power. But that's not kind of uh, creating an impoundment or a reservoir or anything. And then there's also pump storage, which is where you have basically two different pools of water and one's at a higher elevation than the other. And so when the grid has a lot of power, water is pumped up to the higher reservoir and then when it's peak demand and more power is needed to run the grid, water comes out of that higher reservoir and is able to generate electricity. So it's basically like a battery of water. But the main kinds that my paper focuses on are impoundment and um, run of river, although some pump storage stuff comes up. In the history of hydropower, basically um, hydro started at the end of the 19th century and really took off after Edison developed DC current and light bulbs started being powered. There was a little bit of hydro development, but really once AC came about with Tesla, it was much more useful and started increasing in production. And then following that, like with the New Deal projects, really uh, a lot more development came about. But uh, right now, hydropower is 6.3% of usual like yearly generation of electricity, but it's 7% of like overall installed capacity in the United States. And so we've got about 79.9 gigawatts of um, hydropower capacity in this country. In the 20th century, there's two important periods for the development of hydro, you, you mentioned during the New Deal, the development of the Army Corps of Engineers and the Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, a lot of what those organizations did was develop hydropower in the U.S. Talk a little bit about that New Deal period. And then also in the 1980s, we see a big growth in uh, distributed hydroelectric uh, generation. Uh, why did that happen in that? Yeah, um, so the New Deal impact on hydropower was really significant. Most of the really big dam projects you think of, the Hoover Dam, Bonneville, Grand Coulee, all of those just really massive projects came around at this time as part of the New Deal. During the period from 1950 to 1970, U.S. hydro capacity jumped from 100,000 to 275,000 megawatts. Um, and so that was a really significant jump, and it was because all of these big New Deal-era dam projects were coming online during that period of time. The New Deal was really major in the development of the early large-scale projects. 
Um, and then when we talk about PURPA in the at the end of the 70s, um, in 1978, the Public Utilities Regulatory Policy Act, Policies Act um, passed, and it required utilities to buy electricity from small qualifying facilities, which at the time were mostly hydropower facilities and natural gas facilities. And so in the 80s, there's a really big jump in um, 10 megawatt or less hydropower facilities um, being built. And it's because they were able to sell um, power to the grid when they previously hadn't been able to do that so easily. Um, and so that's kind of why that took place. The biggest thing that I hear talked about when it comes to hydro is the opportunity for retrofitting uh, dams that are in existence that don't currently generate electricity. Can you give our listeners an idea about how many dams uh, in the U.S. exist like that and what what the opportunity is there for um, future generations? Yeah, um, so the United States has more than 80,000 dams, but only about uh, 2,400 of them generate power. And uh, there's approximately 12 gigawatts available across all of the um, sites that aren't powered right now. And if you just look at the top 100 sites, the ones that are like the best suited, uh, there'd be eight gigawatts available. And so retrofitting those places is a lot easier in terms of both environmental impact and construction costs than building new dams to generate power. So in a lot of the situations, it just requires going back in and installing turbines, that sort of thing, instead of a whole new construction project. And so um, even the permitting is a bit easier um, in those cases, although there still is a pretty significant permitting process. Do you have a sense of the breakdown between um, how many of these existing dams that don't currently generate electricity? What's the breakdown between those um, in terms of how many are privately owned dams? Yeah, so um, as of 2006, 69% of uh, all hydropower plants were privately owned, but those are often the smaller plants because 73% of the overall capacity was government owned. And 51% of that is just divided between seven federal agencies like the um, Bureau of Reclamation, Tennessee Valley Authority, and the um, Army Corps of Engineers. They're the three big ones that own most of it. Um, and so when you look at the number that says that, like, most of them are privately owned, it doesn't tell the whole story because those are often the smaller plants, whereas uh, the government agencies own many and they're usually big capacity plants. And so their overall impact is a lot higher. And so it's, it is a very government dominated space. Um, there are lots of reasons why either private or public construction wouldn't have taken into account the ability to uh, generate power from doing it. Um, but it is really interesting kind of the way it's come about that such a seriously low percentage of these um, constructions are able to generate useful um, energy. The possibility of converting these dams into uh, converting their ability to generate electricity. Um, your paper, you discuss non-regulatory and regulatory barriers to that process. Um, can you talk about what those obstacles are? Yeah. Um, so there are, of course, the upfront construction costs um, as a non-regulatory barrier. And then also the fact that uh, hydropower receives much uh, worse tax treatment than things like wind and solar do. It's about half of the production tax credit that they receive. And then um, in terms of the regulatory obstacles, uh, the FERC licensing process um, is really long, really arduous requires uh, these long studies that are often redundant. So you'll have to do the same study, like environmental study for one agency, go through that whole process, finish it, and then you have to go through a very similar or identical process for another agency. 
and then you have to meet different laws that are sometimes not even applicable. You might have to do a review of all of the historical structures that are going to be impacted, even if there are no historical structures because it's inside of one enclosed water pipe. So there are all these just little requirements that stack on top of each other and create a really difficult um, environment that can double, even triple the cost of a project to take it from, you know, economically feasible to not. Yeah, and then I know a really interesting element to hydro is the fact that it sort of gets shut out of uh, renewable portfolio standards, which sheds some light on the regulatory game that's being played there, where you have some sources of energy being declared renewable sources like wind and solar, and then hydro, for whatever reason, uh, gets shut out of that. Renewable portfolio standards are like the state policies that require like a certain percentage of a state's energy to come from renewable sources by like a certain year. These policies are really weird in their treatment of hydropower. So some of them will only allow hydropower to count if it was constructed before a certain date. Some of them will only let it happen if it's after a certain date. Some of it will only let it happen if it's under a certain um like level of megawatts. So some are only under 10 megawatts, under 30 megawatts. And it's really variable. And sometimes they'll even have these policies where it's like constructed before a certain date and under this or after a certain date and under this. And they have all of these just really complicated rules for when they will and won't accept it. And it's super variable by state and kind of arbitrary seeming in terms of what the cutoffs they choose are um, and what the impacts that they seem to be afraid of are. And there doesn't seem to be much of a rhyme or reason to it. Um, So those sorts of policies can um, make it a lot less likely that people trying to meet that standard will choose to construct hydro to meet it um, rather than constructing something else. And so it's just kind of another element that discourages that. It's almost as if uh, RPS uh, policies aren't written necessarily to introduce renewable energy. It's there to pick out very specific types of renewable energy and then shut out maybe hydro or other um, sources of energy. So introducing an RPS policy to boost renewable energy generation, when you actually introduce that into our political system, it becomes a way to just gain the regulatory system. And then even within the policy, there's there's people influencing the way that the RPS standard is going to be set. So it's definitely an interesting thing and probably very frustrating for people who are interested in hydro. Because this sort of energy generation has been so tied to government control for so long, regulation and bureaucracy feel like the norm. And so um, breaking through that is going to be kind of difficult. But if um, a better uh, regulatory scheme could be found that would allow construction to be simpler, easier, cheaper, um, I think that a lot more potential would be there than um, otherwise. Great. I guess today has been Paige Labermont. Paige, thanks for talking about hydro with me today. Thanks for having me.